All right. Well, this is where we are in our parables series. We've got a few more weeks left this summer, three after this one. Um, and so we are, though, uh, this morning going to be looking at Matthew chapter 18 and the parable of the wicked servant. And before we get into the text, one of the, the convictions that I have, and it's not unique to me, it's a conviction that's been around for a long time, is that we as men, as parents especially, need to be uh, making sure that our, our kids are doing hard things, right? We need to make sure that, that we're not just making life easy on our kids. And so my family and I, we take a walk every single Monday or most Mondays. And as we go on this walk, it's about a four-mile loop. And as we get back, we, we have to go uphill for the last section of it. And it's probably maybe 100 yards or so uphill. And, and, and it's a decent hill. And on that walk, we take our twins and, and we push them in the stroller. And so the, the stroller with both twins in the stroller, probably you're, you're looking at about 100 pounds there. Um, and so you hit that hill, and then you've got 100 pounds that you're pushing uphill. And for the longest time, that was, that was dad's job. That was my job to push them up the hill. Well, recently, I looked at my son, who's 12, and I thought to myself, you know, it's, it's time for you to start pushing the stroller up the hill. So the first week, he was not happy with that. Pushing 100 pounds, he weighs about 90. So he's pushing more than his body weight. He's pushing twice his, his body weight now up, up the hill as he's trying to get up to the top of the hill. And there's grumbling and complaining, and dad, why am I doing this? And I tried to hold out the carrot of, dude, you're, look, you're doing this because you're going to get stronger and you're going to be able to hit more home runs next baseball season. Next week, same story. We get to the base of the hill. Dad, I don't have to do this again, do I? Yep, you do. Here's the stroller. And so he grabbed the stroller and started going uphill. I don't want to do this. Why do I have to do this? Third week. But I'm pleased to report last week, he hit the base of the hill, took the stroller, and charged up the hill with no issues, no problems, no complaints, no grumbling. So much so that I even took my, my middle son, Luke, who's another 40 pounds, and I put him on top of the stroller as well. So my 12-year-old was pushing about 140 pounds up this hill, and he did it. He handled it just like a man, right? It's important for us to, to make our kids do hard things because we don't want them to grow up coddled. We don't want them to, to grow up and, and not be able to handle life like so many of our young people in the world today can't seem to figure out. Well, man, a lot of times God wants us to do hard things as well. And one of the hard things that he wants us to do is the subject of our parable this morning. God's calling us, men, to be men who are characterized by a heart of forgiveness. And that's hard. That's difficult. It's difficult for us to turn over an offense against us to the Lord. It's difficult for us to release bitterness, to release anger, to release offense, to release a desire and a thirst for vengeance or justification. It's one of the hardest things for us to do because so often we battle that pride, we battle that ego, we battle that desire for our pound of flesh, we battle that thought that if I forgive, then justice isn't done. On our parable this morning, Jesus is going to teach us that forgiveness is so important in God's economy that it is one of the defining characteristics of a person who is truly saved. Our parable this week comes on the heels of, of Peter asking a question. And Peter is the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, right? He's the disciple that, that spoke before he thought so often. And he's my namesake, so I resonate there with, with Peter. Uh, but 
Peter asks this question, and it's there in verse 21 of Matthew 18. Peter comes up to him and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as, as seven times? And again, this, this is that question that we all cringe because we know the rest of the story. But Peter's asking the question that all of us at one point in time have thought about. And whoever it is for you in your life, that you've got that one person that you think, really, I've got to forgive this person again. And maybe for you who are married, maybe that's even your, your wife or your kids, or a family member, or a neighbor, or a coworker, or a boss, but somebody that you just sit there and you wrestle with going, why do I continually have to forgive this person? Do I really have to forgive them again? And Peter, in fact, Peter's patting himself on the back and, and probably looking over his shoulder at his fellow disciples, wondering if they're impressed by his generosity, because for, for Peter to say, hey, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? See, the, the Pharisaic rule and, and teaching at the time was you have to forgive at least three times. More than three, it's up to you. You don't have to forgive more than three times, but at least three times you have to forgive. But if somebody comes back to you, sins against you a fourth time, and they ask for forgiveness, you, according to the Pharisaic law, were under no obligation to forgive that person. So Peter thinks that he's being a, a generous guy here by going to the Lord and saying, hey, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven? I'm going to double the Pharisees and add one for good measure here. But Jesus responds to Peter's question in verse 22, and Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say 70 times seven. Jesus' point was not 490, right? It's not, okay, 490 times. You hit 491, we're done. Jesus' point, man, was not for you to go home and start a tally with your wife and to say, okay, we've been married for 30 years, so I'm going to start you at um, 20 times of forgiveness because I, I've forgiven you at least 20 times. So you have whatever that, that remainder is left before I'm done forgiving you. No, that's not Jesus' point. We know from the scriptures that the number seven was the number of fullness and completion. And so Jesus' point here was that when we are, when it comes to, to forgiveness, that we are to forgive fully and continually and without measure. And again, this is one of the defining characteristics, according to Jesus, of a man who is truly saved. But Jesus knows this is a tall order, and he knows this is a difficult concept, and he knows this is something that we're going to wrestle with. And so he goes from here, and he tells the parable, the parable that we're going to be looking at the rest of our time together. And it begins in verse 23. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children in all that he had and payment to be made. The word servant here should better be understood maybe as the, the word official. That this was a governing official, that this was a, a ruler serving under the king. And this man was entrusted with a, a territory that was a wealthy territory because the king expected him to bring back 10,000 talents every time that he was brought in to give an account of his dealings. Now, 10,000 talents. We don't know if these were talents of silver or talents of gold, but a talent was a, a measure of weight. So if, if we take the lesser side of that, and we say that this was a talent of silver rather than a talent of gold, based on our, our current valuation of silver and what an ounce of silver would weigh today, we're talking a sum of 300 to 400 million dollars every time the king called this man to give an account. 
And so this was not a loan given to a slave. Sometimes in the past, I would have read this and thought to myself, okay, he's a servant. The king's calling him to account. He owes the king 10,000 talents. No king is going to give a slave $400 million. This is a man who is a, a ruler over a territory under the, the authority of the king. And the king is, has tasked this man, whether he's a proconsul or a tax collector, to say, you need to turn a profit of 10,000 talents for the territory that I have entrusted to you. And the king, in verse 25, calls the servant, the official, before him to settle his account. To say, okay, it's time for you to pay up. It's time for you to show me what you've done with the land that I've entrusted to you. And the servant comes and he's unable to pay. See, during that time, whether there was a famine or whether there was dishonesty on the part of the servant or whether there was a flood or something that happened, some natural disaster that impacted the economy of the area, the official over that area was still held accountable for the full expectation of the king. So the servant, this official comes back to the king and says, I can't pay you. And the king looks at the servant and says what was common in that day, and that is, okay, well, you and your family and all of your possessions are going to be sold and the profit from that, I'm, I'm going to keep for myself. Now, this man wasn't worth $400 million. His family wasn't worth $400 million. His possessions wasn't, weren't worth $400 million. But the, the point was the king wanted to send a message to the other officials to say, look, this was what would happen to you if you didn't do what was expected to you. And for that servant, it was more about the punishment of that servant than it was about the king lining his pockets with the money from that servant being sold. Because the thing is, the, the king's expectations were clear. Hey, you're my official. I've put you over this region, and I expect you to turn a profit of 10,000 talents every time that I call you to give an account. Well, now it's time, and you're going to be held accountable. No exceptions, no excuses. You must pay the 10,000 talents. And there's a parallel between the king's expectations on this official and God's expectations on us. In fact, if we go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, the tree, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Here's the standard. From this time forward, God's expectation was clear for mankind and his creation. And that is that we are held to a standard of perfect, continual, ongoing, never failing obedience. That's his standard. The law was established. The first commandment is given. Every tree is yours except for one. Don't eat of this tree. That's the expectation. For the servant, it was you need to produce 10,000 talents. For Adam and Eve, it was don't eat of that tree. For you and I, it's obey the law. Obey God's word. Be holy as your heavenly father is holy. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the standard. And all of us, just like this servant, are held accountable to that standard. And all of us are, are facing a, a time when we will be brought before our king, brought before our God, and held accountable. And there will be no excuses accepted. There will be no rationalization entertained. We will be held accountable. And if we fail, there will be punishment. Men, one of the keys to us being men of forgiveness is understanding just how desperate our own plight was before the Lord, before we were saved. It's understanding that we all fall short of this standard. It's understanding that, that that expectation that that king had for us was impossible for us to achieve. 
just as impossible as it was for this official to turn 300 to 400 million dollars back to this king when he was called to give an account. In fact, more impossible. Because our standard is absolute perfection and not one of us in this room has measured up to that. Men, if we want to be men of forgiveness, men who forgive as we have been forgiven, first thing that we have to do is understand our pre-conversion plight. That's point number one for this morning. Remember your pre-conversion plight. The desperation before you were saved. And I understand this is not our default. Our default is to see ourselves as the hero of the story. Even when we read the Bible, right? When we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, who do you often envision, envision yourself to be in reading the parable? The Good Samaritan, right? Well, that's me. I'm like the Good Samaritan. I know Jesus is the perfect Good Samaritan, but I, I, I would have stopped. I would have helped the guy. We don't want to see ourselves as the, the Levite. We don't want to see ourselves as the priest that's walking on the other side of the road and, and passing. Or when we read the, the parable of the prodigal son, right? Even though the prodigal son was was wrong and evil at the beginning. He came back, and we want to see ourselves as the repentant prodigal son. We don't want to see ourselves as the older brother. We're not that guy. That's the bad guy. We're the good guy in the story. Or you think about the, the life of David. We want to see ourselves as Jonathan, not, not Mephibosheth, right? We want to be the right-hand guy. We want to be the strong guy. We want to be the guy that's climbing the tower and taking out a whole legion of people, right? We want to be that guy. Or you think about David. We want to be David, not, not the, the Israelite cowering in the corner with Goliath. We, well, I would have stood up for the Lord. That's who we want to see ourselves as because we're prone to that. It's not, a, a good, it's, it's not an easy thing. It's a good thing. It's not an easy thing for us to see the plight that we faced before Christ, our desperation before Jesus. But if we hope to be men of forgiveness, men who are generous and immeasurable, and offer forgiveness to others the way that we have been forgiven, we first have to realize that we needed desperately the forgiveness of Jesus ourselves. Romans 3.23, Paul writes there, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. All of us have sinned. We've missed the mark and fallen short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's perfect, transcendent holiness. And all of us have missed on that. Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 53, 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Jesus, the Messiah, the sins of us all, the iniquity of us all. Or like Paul in Romans chapter 7, getting to that place of looking at his sin and, and finally crying out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? There's our pre-conversion plight right there. Realizing our wretchedness, our helplessness, realizing that we have nothing good within us to offer, realizing that we have no merit, nothing to make us attractive to the Lord, and simply crying out for his mercy. And that's where we have to remember. It's the point at which we have to, to recall. None of us were born saved. None of us have always been a Christian. No one has ever always been a Christian. All of us at some point in time needed the forgiveness of God just like this servant because we were facing an impossible, an impossible accounting. Just like this official. We were this official. John Owen explains a little bit further when he writes this. He says, charge your conscience with the guilt 
that appears in it from the rectitude and holiness of the law. Bring the holy law of God into your conscience. Lay your corruption to it. Pray that you may be affected with it. Consider the holiness, spirituality, fiery severity, inwardness, absoluteness of the law, and see how you can stand before it. Be much, I say, in affecting your conscience with the terror of the Lord in the law, and how righteous it is that every one of your transgressions should receive a recompense of reward. That's not a fun mental exercise, but it's a good one. Not to stay there, not to live there, because we we need to, to go from this point to the cross, right? We need to get to the cross because the cross is where our forgiveness comes in. And we're going to get there here this, this morning as well. But the, the point right now is that we need to think more about our pre-conversion plight in order to increase our willingness to exercise mercy towards other people. It's like a man who has been revived, who has had to have CPR performed on him, or has had to have the, the, the shock applied to his, his chest so that his heart would restart, right? When he tells that story in the future, he's not going to trivialize the desperation of his plight and say, well, yeah, I, I wasn't breathing. My heart had stopped. And, you know, this guy came along on the beach. I didn't ask him to, but he gave me CPR and now I'm here. I, was, I would have bounced back. I, I was getting ready to rub some dirt on it and just get back in the game. I was fine. Yeah, I was legally dead for a few minutes, but I'm really, yeah, they helped me. Big deal, right? No, that's, nobody's going to be that foolish. But we're often tempted to do that with our pre-conversion plight. We're often tempted to say, well, I didn't owe 10,000 talents to the Lord. I wasn't that bad off. Maybe three or 4,000, not 10,000. Yeah, I I needed salvation. I I, I recognize that. I I needed salvation, but that's only because everybody needs salvation. Yeah, I I needed a, a righteousness that wasn't my own, but that's only because God made it impossible for me to be righteous on my own, right? If I if He had made a way for me to be righteous on my own, well then, then I would have had a shot at this. I mean, if anybody would have had a shot, I would. See, we we play those games where we trivialize how desperate we were without Christ. And that impacts our willingness to see the need to forgive other people as well. We're like the Pharisee who says, God, I thank you that I am not like that man over there. Man, we need to leave no doubt in our minds that we were just like this first official. Whether you grew up in the church or grew up in the bars, you were at one point in time just as desperate as this first official. Whether you were a a Boy Scout or part of Hell's Angels, you were at one point just as desperate as this first official. Whether you were the paradigm of integrity or the guy that your dads warned your sisters about, you were at one point just as desperate as this official. Whether you knew the Bible backwards and forwards or you didn't know Matthew from Malachi, At some point in time, you were just as desperate as this first official. We have to remember that. Because the key to us being men of forgiveness, which is what Jesus wants us to be, one of the defining characteristics of whether we are in Christ or not is our willingness and our ability to forgive from the heart. If we want to be men of forgiveness, it begins with our ability to empathize with those who have offended us. 
And that empathy comes from a knowledge and an understanding of how much we have offended God and how much we needed forgiveness first from him. And we see that forgiveness offered by this king. Look at verse 26. Unable to pay in with the king saying, okay, I'm going to sell you. The servant, it says, fell on his knees, imploring him, begging him, pleading with him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. See, once we realize our desperation prior to our conversion, our pre-conversion plight, all of us then need to get to this point where this servant is at, where he falls on his knees. He falls before the king. Some translations say falls on his face. He's prostrate. He's laid out in submission before the king. And he casts himself entirely upon the mercy of this king. And all of us at some point in time had to get there with God as well. And he pleads with the king because there's no scenario in which he can imagine what the king is about to do, which is to forgive him completely. And so the servant pleads with the king and says, please, just give me more time and I will repay you. There's no amount of time that would have sufficed for this servant to try to repay the debt that he owed this king. Just like there was no amount of time that would have sufficed for you and I to try to live a life of obedience that would have made up for the sins that we had already committed before the Lord. One commentator put it this way. He said, all of this spelled disaster for the unfortunate debtor. With such a huge debt hanging over his head and with all his assets lost to him, there was no chance of his ever being free again. Everything was lost. Justice was of no use to him. So he wholeheartedly went for mercy. I love that, that phrase there. And that's all of us at some point in time. When we turn to the Lord in faith and repentance, we are wholeheartedly going for mercy. Again, there's, there's no other choice for this servant but to cast himself upon the mercy of this king. Verse 27 says this, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The word for and there in the Greek could be translated but, and I, I personally prefer that because I think Jesus was creating a contrast here between what was expected and what happened. The servant expects justice. And that's what he deserved. The servant expects punishment. And that's what he deserved. The servant expects destruction. And that's what he deserved. But instead, he receives pity and compassion and unfathomable mercy, which is not at all what he deserved. Verse 27, he says the king released him, pardoned, acquitted. In fact, it's the same word that was used for the concept of divorce that this king is divorcing the debt from this servant. And he forgave him, releases him of the consequence of his failure to be able to pay the king what he owed him. But notice the king doesn't grant the servant's request. And thankfully for the servant, and thankfully for you and I, God doesn't grant our request. Our request is, God, give me more time, just like the servant. Let me contribute. Let me try to be good enough. Let me clean myself up. Let me be holy for a little while. Let me become acceptable to you. And then, Lord, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll be a worthwhile investment of your grace. Well, we're not worthwhile investments of God's grace. If God was to sit down with a financial advisor and his grace was his, his capital, there's no way that the financial advisor would tell him to invest it in me. Or any of us for that matter. 
If this king sat down with his financial advisor and, and told his financial advisor, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive this 300 to $400 million debt that's owed me. I'm just going to let it go. There's not a financial advisor on the face of the planet that would have said, yeah, that's a good idea. You should do that. This, the king doesn't grant the servant's request. If the king had said, okay, I'll give you six months, I'll give you six years, I'll give you 60 years, the, the servant would have never been able to repay the king, and the king knew that. If God looked at us and said, I'll give you 6,000 lifetimes, we would have never been able to repay what we owe him, which is perfection. And thank God he doesn't give us what we ask of him, thinking that we can somehow do it ourselves. But instead, he responds with this unthinkable, unimaginable, unfathomable mercy. And that's the same mercy that the Lord has given us. Just as this king was not stingy with his mercy, God has not been stingy with his mercy towards us either. He provided all that we needed and more by completely canceling our debt against him. As we remember our pre-conversion plight, it's important, like I said earlier, to get to the cross. And that's our second point here this morning. It's appreciate the magnitude of God's mercy towards you. Appreciate the magnitude of God's mercy towards you. That he didn't leave us in that situation. That he didn't leave us in our desperation. And also that he didn't say, okay, try harder. Work a little bit more. Clean yourself up. And then maybe, maybe I'll consider negotiating your, your debt down a little bit. No, he just forgave it all. In fact, Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Why? How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You owe 10,000 talents. You owe absolute perfection and moral integrity and holiness before a just and holy God. There's the, the record of debt that stood against us. And Paul says he canceled that debt. How? By doing what? By nailing it to the cross. By nailing it to the cross. Who suffered a loss in this parable? The king. He suffered a loss of 10,000 talents that he was rightly owed. Man, who suffered a loss at the moment of your salvation? God did. Because your salvation cost him his son. See, the debt that was owed still needed to be paid. And that's what it means when Paul says he took that record of debt and nailed it to the cross. He put it on Jesus. And Jesus paid the price for us. The magnitude of God's mercy towards us. You, you know, if you came up to me this morning and, and you really didn't like the sermon, and you should punch me in the face. Please don't. But if you did, and I just said, you know, I get it. I understand it. I forgive you. You'd probably be thankful that I, I was gracious to forgive you in that. And then if you got in your car and you went and you were still salty about the sermon and you were driving and you were driving too fast and you got pulled over by a police officer and that cop came up to the window and you punched him in the face. And then he said, you know, I was streaming Pastor PJ's message this morning and I understand why you're a little salty as well. I should arrest you for assaulting a police officer, but I'm, I'm going to forgive you. 
mean, your gratitude for that cop's forgiveness would go up even more than your gratitude for my forgiveness. And then let's say you stopped by Ralph's on the, the way back to your house or to work or whatever, and you ran into a five-star general there, um, and you're salty about the way things are going with our country right now, and you punch that five-star general in the face. He looks at you, and he's like, man, you're, you're punching a lot of people in the face today. Maybe you should stop that. But hey, I, I know you've, you've had a rough day, rough morning. I'm going to forgive you. I've got the full weight of America's military that I could just bring down upon you right now, but I'm, I'm going to forgive you. I think your gratitude level would go up even more. Now, if you were to take, just let me be careful with my wording here, a president, okay? A president. And if you were to walk up to a president, any president from any point in time, and you were to punch that president in the face, and the Secret Service were to take you down, put you on the ground, and have you face down on the ground, and then that president was to look at you and say, son, you, you should be taken away and imprisoned for the rest of your life. You should be disappeared from off the face of the planet for assaulting the president of the free world. But I'm going to forgive you. Your gratitude would go through the roof at that point. See, the offense is the same. From me to the president, it's a punch in the face. But how grateful you are for the forgiveness you receive is, is, is equal to the, the, the rank of the person that you've offended. The rank of the person who's doing the forgiving. See, man, our offense against a holy and just and perfect God and the forgiveness that he's given to us should cause us to be overwhelmed with gratefulness and thankfulness for how valuable that forgiveness is. Because there is no one greater than our God. No one who ranks higher than him. And we certainly have offended him. And before Christ, our very existence offended the Lord. Habakkuk said, God, your eyes are too pure to even look on evil. Isaiah and Isaiah 6 is before the throne with Jesus on the throne and he can't even get above the, 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 the train of his robe and, until he is completely undone. Woe is me, damned and I, am I. I'm, I'm consumed in my, my sin before a holy God. What he says later in Isaiah, when he says, look, even, even our good works are so tainted by our sinfulness that they are repulsive to God. Our very existence offended him. We needed an immeasurable portion of God's mercy, and he gave us an immeasurable portion of his mercy. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ Jesus, right? Romans 5, we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God when Christ died for us. We weren't attractive. We weren't cleaned up. We weren't, we weren't appealing. We were hostile towards him. When he died for us. How grateful should we be? Back to that CPR illustration. Just like you wouldn't downplay your desperation and your need for, for being physically saved. You also wouldn't forget the person who saved you. You'd want to know their name. You'd want to tell other people about, about them and be thankful for them. And, and be grateful for what they did to save you. Right? And That should be us with the Lord as well. Grateful and thankful for what he's done to save us. Milton Vincent, in his book, A Gospel Primer, writes this. He says, when I look at any circumstance that God apportions me, I am first grateful for the wrath I am not receiving in that moment. 
Whatever comes my way in life, the first thing I want to think is that I'm grateful that I'm not receiving the wrath that I deserve right now. Second, he says, I'm grateful for the blessings that are given to me instead of his wrath. Life's blessings, however small, always appear exceedingly precious when viewed against the backdrop of the wrath I deserve. The two-layered gratitude disposes my heart to give thanks in all things, and it also lends a certain intensity to my giving thanks. Such a gospel-generated gratitude glorifies God, contributes to peace of mind, and keeps my foot from the path of foolishness and ruin. And we should never go a day without reminding ourselves of the magnitude of the mercy of God. Preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, right? Sometimes people say that and you think, well, why do I need to preach the gospel to myself daily? Don't I, I already know that. And didn't the writer of Hebrews say we don't need to lay again a foundation of faith and repentance that we need to move on from these things? Yeah, you're not preaching the gospel because you need to be saved again. You're preaching the gospel to yourself daily because we need to be constantly aware of the mercy that God has shown us and constantly grateful and thankful for the mercy that God has shown us. And men, if, if we are aware of that mercy, if we are aware of the magnitude of the mercy that God has shown us, it's going to prepare our hearts to be the men of forgiveness that Jesus is calling us to be. Unlike what it did for this servant. Because look at verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience on me and I will pay you. He refused and went in and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. hundred denarii would work out somewhere around $100,000 in today's economy. So not a small amount, right? I mean, this is still an offense. If, if somebody owed you $100,000 today, you'd want to be paid back, yes? But I think what strikes me so much about the way that Jesus sets this up in the parable is the abruptness of verse 28. Notice there's no, hey, thank you so much king for forgiving my massive debt that I could never pay you. There's no rejoicing. There's no running out and telling his family because he had a family. Remember the family was going to be sold. There's no going home going, you'll never believe what this king just did for me. Guess what? We don't owe 300, 400 million dollars anymore. You'll never, there's no running through the streets of his neighborhood going, can I tell you how gracious and merciful our king is? There's, there's no singing his praises. There's no gratitude. There's no gratefulness. In fact, there's not even any time that passes. Verse 28 says, he went out from there and found a fellow servant who owed him $100,000. Again, not, not chump change. Somebody owes me $100,000. I want that debt settled too. But maybe not if I've just been forgiven $300 million to my account. And see, Jesus here, just like the parable of the prodigal son when he was in the pig pen and he was, wanted to eat the pig food, Jesus is trying to layer the shock factor, layer upon layer upon layer upon layer here. And so there's the initial shock that we talked about of the lack of gratitude, the lack of thanksgiving, the lack of joyfulness, right? There's the, the, the lack of an appreciation for that mercy that God had shown him. Then there's the, the shock of the servant's thoughts to immediately go out and seek payment from one of his fellow officials. And then there's the shock at the difference between the values. You were just forgiven 300 million and you want 100,000 now? Like I get that this was an offense. I get that this is, this is hard for you to be out $100,000. But man, think about what just happened. 
The king just forgave you a debt that is way more than what this guy owes you. And then there's the shock too of, of the response when the, the fellow servant there falls on his knees and pleads with him in verse 29. This should sound familiar. Have patience with me and I will pay you. It's the shock that this is the same exact thing that the first servant pleaded before the king. And if nothing else at this point in time, you would think that hearing that would be a wake-up call for the first servant to go, oh, wow, oh, what am I doing? This was me 10 minutes ago. This was me. And how much more did I owe? And, and do I not recognize myself in this one that's pleading for forgiveness from me? Who am I that I should not forgive him when I was just forgiven this massive debt? And yet there should be also the shock of the response of the servant and how aggressive he is. He begins choking the man physically. And then when he realizes, okay, I'm not getting paid, he says, take this guy and throw him in debtor's prison until he can repay me what he owes me. The, the, the audience, man, the, Jesus was going for the shock factor here. He wanted their jaws to be on the, the ground. Well, some fellow servants are nearby in verse 31, and they hear this, they see this, and they go to the king. They were greatly distressed, and they reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned this man and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have also had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Wicked servant. It's a word that means worthless, degenerate. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. The word all is in a position of emphasis in the Greek there. He's reminding him of the vastness of his, his debt and the vastness of his mercy. He's reminding him of his plight before forgiveness. He's saying, I forgave you all of that because you pleaded with me. In verse 33, should you not also have exercised forgiveness yourself? It, it loses some of the rhetorical impact in the English translation because in the Greek, it's more of a command. You should have forgiven him the debt, just as I forgave you. Yes? The implied answer, of course, is yes, I should have. Put yourselves, man, in, in the shoes of the master for a moment and ask yourself, man, how would you feel? You've just forgiven this massive amount of debt from this man who pleaded with you. You exercised a mercy that you didn't have to exercise. You were generous in a way that you didn't have to be generous. And it was a great cost to you. And then this man goes out and does this. Imagine your feeling, your response, your, even as the text says here, your anger towards this man. Okay, now I want you to change shoes. And I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of this servant. Standing again before the king. The fear. The trepidation. The shame. Hearing the judgment knowing you were guilty, realizing you had committed this great evil and refusing to provide even a sliver of the mercy that you had been shown by the king. Man, that's where Jesus wanted his listeners, is in the shoes of this servant. That's where he wants us, is in the shoes of the servant so that we feel the weight and the danger of an unforgiving heart. Final point this morning is just that. Realize the grave danger of an unforgiving heart. Realize the grave danger of an unforgiving heart. 
I told you at the beginning, forgiveness is a, a hallmark of a genuine Christian. It's a defining characteristic of a genuine Christian. Is a man who has a forgiving heart. And it comes, that point comes from verse 35. Look at what Jesus says here. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you. Do what to every one of you? Judge you, condemn you, and throw you into eternal punishment. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We think that it's if you do not repent from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the key, right? That's the foundation. But Jesus is pulling back a layer for us saying, one of the character, characteristics of a man who's repented of his sins and put his faith in Jesus as the Lord and Savior is that he's a man who's going to forgive other people from his heart. And Jesus says very starkly and plainly here, if you refuse to forgive, you should not expect to be forgiven. That if you harbor bitterness and you will not let go of that and you will not exercise forgiveness the way that you've been forgiven, that you should not expect that your father will forgive you. And really, it's, it goes back to, and, and maybe we say, well, how, that seems works-based. How can that be that this is, my, my eternal state is contingent upon whether or not I forgive? Well, it's contingent upon whether or not you forgive because if you understand the gospel, you will be a man of forgiveness. If we understand our pre-conversion plight and that we were as, as desperate as anyone else on the face of the planet, and if we understand the magnitude of God's mercy t- towards us, and the cost that it involved to forgive us at the cross, if we understand those two things, then it will, uh, it will un- inevitably yield a forgiving heart within us because it will humble us and cause us to have a love for other people to see them in their plight and to realize, who am I to withhold mercy when God has shown me so much mercy? See, if we close our hearts off towards other people, then we're putting ourselves in a position where we are saying to the Lord, Lord, the offense against me is greater than my offense against you. And that's why this is so grave and so dangerous for us to be men who are refusing to forgive others. Okay, well, Pastor PJ, do I have to forgive everyone even if they never ask for forgiveness? Well, there's differing views on this. Luke 17, verses three through four. Jesus says here in a similar context, he says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, notice it's conditional here in Luke chapter 17. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So there are those out there that would say, well, it's conditional. That you were only meant to forgive if a person repents. Okay, for your Luke 17, I'm going to substitute in Acts chapter 7. What happens in Acts chapter 7? We just had it in our main services. What happens in Acts chapter 7? We can interact a little bit. A guy named Stephen is being stoned to death. And as he's being stoned to death, he prays what? Father, forgive them. Were they repenting in that moment? No, they had rocks above their heads in that moment. How about your Savior on the cross? Father, forgive them. Were they repenting in that moment? No, they were crucifying him in that moment. See, man, I guess we could say, yes, as far as our earthly transactional relationship here, from from person to person, man to man, we could make it conditional. 
that that relationship does not necessarily need to be reconciled if that person is not repentant. And in fact, I could even see a scenario in which if we forgive without the repentance being offered, it may come across as though we are condoning the sinful behavior. It may be detrimental to that person for us to reconcile without true repentance taking place there. I I can see where that scenario exists. However, let me suggest that there's another element to our forgiveness that is not conditional, that needs to be offered every single time. And that's that we need to release that offense unto the Lord. We need to release our sense of of a need for vindication, a need for justice, a need for a pound of flesh. We have to let that go and give that unto God because as the Bible says, vengeance is not ours but his, yes? And so men, it's, it's a problem. Maybe you're not gonna reconcile to somebody on an earthly level, okay? I can see scenarios in which that exists. Somebody rapes your wife. You're not gonna reconcile to that person on an earthly level. There's going to be a, a gap there especially if there is not a repentance that takes place from that person. And even if there is, you're not having them over for family dinner. However, there needs to be a transaction between you and the Lord in which that, that release that is forgiveness, the master released him and forgave his debt. You need to be able to release the bitterness, to release the anger, to release the need for your pound of flesh under the Lord, because otherwise it's impacting not your horizontal relationships anymore, but it's impacting your vertical relationships with the Lord. And as Jesus said, it's, it's potentially indicative of a heart that's not his. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, there's a parallel a joint movement of compassion that is first received from God and then we in turn exercise the same compassion to others. God makes it clear that if we lack compassion and harbor vengeance in our hearts, that's why Jesus says you have to forgive your brother from your heart. Rather than being ready to forgive again and again, we will forfeit any forgiveness that has been given to us. Men, be cautious with an unforgiving heart. It's a dangerous thing. Some of you in this room may have business that you need to do with the Lord about somebody in your life, in your past, that you still harbor bitterness and anger over, that you need to release to the Lord. And some of you in this room may have had people in the past who have sinned against you and they have come to you and repented. And the command is clear there in Luke 17 that we are to forgive when somebody comes to us and repents and asks for our forgiveness. And you may think, well, I don't think they were genuine in that. That's not your job to judge their motives. Your job is to offer them forgiveness. Again, it doesn't mean that you're sitting down for family dinner with them. But some of you may have men or other people in this life that have sinned against you in the past and have asked for forgiveness and you've withheld forgiveness from them and you need to do business not just with the Lord but also with them today. I love Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. The prophet says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will I love this phrase. He will abundantly pardon. Aren't we grateful for that reality? Thankful for the mercy that we've received. That God is a God who abundantly pardons. That God is a God who shows the immeasurable mercy that we need. 
So, man, if we want to be men of forgiveness, we need to, to be continually aware of our pre-conversion plight, our desperation without the Lord. We need to be grateful for the magnitude of the mercy that God has shown us. And then with those two things in mind, we need to make sure that we are guarding against the dangers of an unforgiving heart. Because as Jesus said, it's one of the defining characteristics. A man of forgiveness is a, a, a man who can have confidence that he is in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that we've been forgiven. And as we've been forgiven, Lord, we want to also be men who forgive. And that's hard for us. So often it's a work of the Holy Spirit for us to be able to die to ourselves, to die to our desires for retribution, to die to our desires for vengeance, to die to our, our desires for our conception and perception of what justice is and to trust you with all of those things, Lord. That vertical layer of forgiveness when we are doing business with you really is about our trust and it's about our faith. It's taking the offense against us and realizing that it's first and foremost an offense against you and trusting that you will handle justice. Whether that is through when you poured out your, your wrath upon Christ as he hung on the cross for the sins of, of believers or whether that's through your wrath being poured out on that person throughout all of eternity in hell. God, justice is yours, not ours. Lord, I pray for the men in this room that if there is business that needs to be done with you this morning, that it would be a priority to get that done. I pray that if there's business that needs to be done at a horizontal level with other people, Lord, I pray that that would be a top priority today to get that done so that we are not harboring a spirit of unforgiveness in any way, shape, or form. Again, Lord, thank you for the mercy that you've shown us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. For small groups, you're...